One of the most basic questions of human life is this. How do I make decisions? I don't know how much of my time is spent trying to work out what should I do here? What shouldn't I do? Do you ever find that you're just tired of making decisions? You're like, no, not another decision. Uh, But we constantly call to make decisions in life and to think through what values and principles and actions should shape the way that we live. One of the greatest glories, I think, of being human is our ability to make decisions about how we live. We don't just act on instinct. We actually get a a choice um, to choose whether we'll go with our instinct or against it. Uh, We can make rational decisions or irrational ones. As far as I see, our decisions seem to be the things that shape our life. What is it that shapes the way you make decisions? I want to throw a couple of options up, three ways really that we can make decisions. One of them is law. Principles from outside of ourselves set the regulations for how we live. Societies operate by law, laws which protect us and and set up boundaries and social norms that make life livable. They're external to us, but they're good. They exist to, uh, to allow us to experience life within a good set of parameters. That means we don't go off the rails. Then for others of us, we choose to live by what we might call liberty. In other words, it's not the law that shapes me, but my rejection of the law. We want to actually reject what the law says and be like, if, if that sign says wet paint don't touch, I'm going to touch it. Because this is how I live, right? I, I, I'm kind of in spite of the law. Uh, we break free from the laws of society. We break free from the moral codes of our upbringing. We want to be individuals. We want to be different from the pack. We want to be responsible for our own lives. And we don't want to conform to the laws around us. So we shape the decisions of our life in the polar opposite way to the laws that are there. Freed from legalism. For many of us, we live by, li- by, um, by liberty. But for others of us, the third way to think through is what I call license. Um, So law, liberty, and license. Now, license isn't just choosing to do the opposite of the law. Um, It's actually a total rejection that law exists. License says, I am the law to myself. I make it up. Um, It's a rejection of having any responsibility to anyone else except yourself. You don't care about the outcomes. You're like, I'm just going to do whatever I want. You, You just let life take you where you want it to take you. Ride the winds of life. Have an adventure, right? It's, it's, it's what some of us are about. It feels good. And if it feels good, just do it. Who cares? There's different ways that we shape our life. And at different times, we'll, we'll, we'll not just choose one of those, but different aspects of the way that we think about how we make decisions. What's on view in this passage here is the question of what is life like lived in relationship with the true and living God? What difference does God make to the way I think about how I make decisions and and should he make any difference? How I shape my life. Does it look any different when you've met the true and living God? Well, at the start of chapter 19, we come across an incredible moment in the life of this nation. And you kind of almost miss its significance because it's so blasé in the way it just rolls on. Look at chapter 19, verse 2. After they departed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And Israel camped there in front of the mountain. What mountain? You keep reading through and it never says what mountain it is. It's like, is it Mount Monganui? Like the mount, right? It's the the place to be. What what is this mountain? 
And you're kind of like, why don't they reference it? Why do they just expect me to know what mountain is in the wilderness of Sinai? Well, because they're call- the, the author is calling us to remember something very significant that God said back at the start. Because the, the author is calling us to remember what God has previously said, who this God is and what he said in the past. Remember before there were snakes and plagues and seas parting and seas coming crashing down, God gave his word to Moses and it was a promise. He said this, chapter 3, verse 12. I will certainly be with you and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Moses was standing on Mount Sinai when God said that to him in chapter 3, verse 12. He said, here, I'm bringing all them. He's not even back in Egypt yet. There's none of these plagues, none of those ideas. This will be the sign that I am with you, that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, this was always the focus. What mountains are you talking about? How could we forget? God is taking his people to free them from the slavery of Egypt and bring them to himself. And here they are. They've come out of the land. God has done what he said he would do, as he always does. This is the God who keeps his word. And so Moses goes up the mountain. And God explains to him how he and all of Israel must respond, how they live, how they are to shape their life in response to what God has done. Look at 19 verse 3. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob. And explain to the Israelites, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Remember, remember my word that I said to you, now I've brought you here. Remember my actions, what I've done. Remember who saved you. It's the first way to live in response to this God. Remember snakes, plagues, sea, fire, crushing of Egyptians, obliteration of the Egyptian army, all of that. Remember who did it. It wasn't you. It was me. It had nothing to do with you, Moses or Israel. Now, in most relationships in life, kind of with people as we're living our life, they begin with some kind of two-way interaction. You know, um, she notices something he does and she likes it and he notices something she says and there's this mutual love or, or, or something that sparks that relationship between two people. But here with God, it's intrinsically very, very different. There is nothing good or attractive about these people. <laughs> they were doubting, complaining, forgetful, unfaithful, ungrateful people, remember? I want more meat. Where's my meat? Where's my water? They they didn't trust God the whole way through. They did absolutely nothing to contribute to getting them to this mountain. They didn't make the the sea part. They didn't crush the Egyptian army. They didn't bring the plagues on all of Egypt. They did nothing. They just followed. That was it. (laughs) It was God who saved them. We must remember this as we come to God's way of responding to him, that it is a response The way we live is in response to what he has already done. He carried them on eagles' wings. Such a great image, isn't it? You know, this picture of some huge eagle from some, you know, crazy movie or something. But, you know, and then like, it's it's almost as if he's just bringing them out of slavery to this promised land. You know, if you are sitting on eagles' wings, all you're doing is sitting. 
The eagle does the work. <laughs> you can't fly, right? You, you can't part the sea. You can't. It, it's very, very clear. God is the one who is in control. And it's so effortless for God, though, isn't it? Seems like he just speaks and it happens. He parts the sea. They walk through on dry land. He brings it back. It was so effortless for God to use his power like this. But it was even more effortless for the, Egypt, for the Israelites. They did nothing. They just trusted God. Relationship with the true and living God is always based on what he has done. Always. It, it can be no other way. Since I've already chosen you, since I've saved you, since I've brought you to me and shown you my faithful word and mighty acts, since it had nothing to do with you and everything to do with me, this is how you continue trusting me, being my people. This is how you act appropriately. Since I've saved you, this is how to act. Have a look at verse 5 and 6 and hear what he says. Now, if you will listen to me, And carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the people. Although all the earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Try not to let the familiarity of some of those words just brush over you. You will be called my own possession. You will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation set apart for me. What we see here is that Christianity is different from every other religion. Every other religion says that if you do right, if you live right, then you'll be accepted. We have to do all this stuff in order to be right before God. It's just part of how we naturally are, how we naturally think. We think that that it's always based on what I do. The very reason that when we hear that God says, because I've saved you, you must act this way. I go, why must I act that way? (laughs) I just miss how God works because he's already saved me. But if if I said, okay, you've got to act this way in order for me to bless you. I'd be like, oh yeah, I get that because I'm working for for what I want. But here we see God is so very different from every other religion. God says, I have completely accepted you. I've carried you on eagle's wings. I've saved you and brought you to myself. Therefore, listen to me. (laughs) Listen to me. Keep my commands. Therefore, you're good. Obey me. Being a good person, following the the Ten Commandments, um, giving to the poor, lots of things that we can do. They don't earn us a relationship with God. You've only got to look at God's acts to recognize that I can't earn that. You know, how much do I owe you, God, for parting the Red Sea? You know, what, what, what can I do to kind of pay you back for that? You, you, can't, you can't do that. Just, they're of a whole other scale. Oh, how much do I owe you um, for feeding us for 40 years in the desert with manna from, from, from the, you know? What, what do we owe you for that? You know, how, you just, they're, they're a whole other magnitude. You can't pay back God. As you... Flick your eyes forward to the day Jesus would come to earth and die on a cross. What do I owe you, Jesus, for for dying for me? How how much can I pay you back for that? So we're square, you know? (laughs) We've got to recognize who we are dealing with. It's offensive to think that our obedience to God earns our relationship with him. Really? (laughs) That means the purpose of the law was never to get you right with God. 
It was never to get blessing from God because they were already blessed. They were already called his people and saved. The law, God's commands that are about to come on Mount Sinai, were how Israel were to respond since God had already saved them. They are the appropriate response to a God who acts in this way, the true and living God who's accepted you, who's carried you on eagle's wings, who has saved you. It's as if God's saying, you know, I've done my part. I've listened to your cry. I've listened to the deepest needs of you and I've come. Now, let me show you how to respond and live in the good way, in a way that delights me, in a way that is delightful. Let me show you how to live as I intended you. And that's what we're about to see in the Ten Commandments. Not some list of things we must do, like it's some kind of overlord that says, keep this, do that. No, it's showing us what delights God, what is good. Honesty, integrity, justice, love, they're all there tied up in these Ten Commandments. And what God is saying is it's an invitation to come and delight in what he delights in. To continue this relationship with the God who saves. To tie your happiness and what your definition of happiness is to the God who made you and invented happiness. To remain with him as your God. As your ruler, as your savior, as your king. And to remain as his people. There are all sorts of benefits that come that we hear in that verse. Um, Although the whole earth is his, Israel, this little nation, get called a treasured possession. It's it's, it's a funny language there that we see, this treasured possession. It's literally royal property. That belonging to the personal collection of the king. Not just like the whole of the kingdom belongs to the king, but actually the stuff that's in his house. The stuff that he has close, the things that he puts on his mantelpiece. The things that are dear to him, Israel get called the treasured possession. Special compared to the rest of humanity. There's something amazing that happens here with this nation that God blesses them in, in such a way. But that position was not only for their good. That position of being his treasured possession was for the good of the whole earth. For they're called my kingdom of priests. That's the only section in the Old Testament that uses that phrase at all. And what it's saying here is that God's people were to be a nation that were to bring God to the world, to mediate between God and the world, that as the world around all the nations saw the way that Israel worked and operated, that they would stand back and go, oh, who is their God? I want to see this God. I want to meet this God for those ways are right and true and good. That's what they were called to do. Because remember back to the promise to Abraham. I will make you a great nation and through your seed, all nations will be blessed. Yes, Israel had a very special place. They have a very special place in the heart of God. And through them, God's aim was always to reach all nations. Don't forget that. Isaiah 49 verse 6, it's on the screen. Here is a period in Israel's history when they're in captivity. They're not in the promised land. That's much further forward. Um, what's on their minds the most at this point is wanting to be freed and back into the land that God promised them and have the 12 tribes of Israel happening properly. Listen to what God says. It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God had always had in mind the whole world, whom he would bless through this nation 
that he brought out of Egypt and was now giving the most delightful way to live. And they were to live as a holy nation, to look different. The word holy doesn't just mean angelic, kind of white with a plate glow like behind your head. Right? It's not like oh, someone's just holy and they're better than everyone else. Holy means set apart, different. Holy, W-H-O-L-Y, given uh, to, to something or someone. They were to look different from the rest of the earth. If you read through chapters 20 to 24, you start to notice that actually this isn't the way that someone gets saved. This is the way that this nation ought to live that is to be very, very different from the world around them. It's an outline of what the radically different human community could look like. If you look through it like that, you'll start to see that this law that God has given is is a thing of beauty, is, is a great thing. Sex, money, power, all those things are to be used in God's people in such a good way, in a way that's non-destructive, in a way that's non-addictive, that's non-exploitive. It's completely different from the way that the world around them acts. You see, Israel stand out as very, very different. And you can see that reflected in the Ten Commandments. We're not going to spend heaps of time now on the Ten Commandments in church. Love you to go along to one of your connect groups. Uh, we'll spend some time there in connect groups. The study looks great this week. Uh, working through, as it does most weeks, every week. Look at that. I'm getting myself in trouble. Um, connect groups are a great place to be going, what is this saying and what does this mean and how do we think through it? So please do go along to connect group. If you're not in one, you are missing out. Uh, you can sign up in, in your outline. Shameless plug on the side. But just listen to the laws. Here's, um, here's some of them. Remember the Sabbath. Rest. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't want what everyone else has. As we hear those, there's just something right and good about them, about using the things that we have in a way that's appropriate. Sex, money, power. Not, not abusing people. As far as I'm aware, this was the first culture in history where adultery was not just a sin for women, but also a sin for men. Now, I could be wrong, but that's kind of what, what I've seen so far. It was the first culture where daughters could inherit their family's wealth as well as sons. If you think about money and the way money is used, every Israelite was required to give away 10% of their income each year and the first bit of their income to share with the community, to share with the poor, to share with the Levites and the priests, those who were serving them before God. But on every third year, there was an additional offering to the poor that was made. And if you worked it out across the three years, it meant every Israelite was giving away 23.3% of their income each year because of what they were doing and how they were acting. Now, does that feel like radical generosity to you? (laughs) It doesn't feel like people who want to hold it for themselves. It's people who wanted to see this community and God's people growing it's very very different now there's part of me that as i hear that i think 23.3 percent that's pretty that's a lot it's a quarter of my income if that seems too radically generous for me then i don't get what god is trying to say about how this nation ought to be different they are not to live for their money or their possessions, or the first fruit of their crops. They are to live for the God who provides everything. God doesn't need their money. He owns it all. <laughs> They're to trust Him. He will provide. He will look after them. And power, really quickly. Aliens, immigrants, racial outsiders, right? The law said that if they're among you, you're to give them the rights and privileges of the rest of you. 
This law is good. Why were they given those, those privileges? Because God says, remember what it was like when you were in Egypt, when you were an alien, <laughs> when you were living there. With, there just seems to be no society like this. The law of God, you've got to see, it's not like a stairway to heaven. It's not how I climb up to God. It doesn't save you. It's a way of having that intimate relationship with God. It's delighting in him and living his way and being molded and shaped into a radically different people, radically different from the world around them. But to understand the law, to understand how those kind of commandments all fit together, you need to understand that they all hinge on the first one, really first three commandments. Before God says, don't kill, don't lie, don't steal, he says this, have no other gods before me. He is the true and living God. Who else has brought them out of Egypt? Who else can act in that way? He says, no, have no other gods. I am the only God. And right after that, he says, do not make an idol for yourself. Don't fashion anything into something that you're going to worship or even as you want to worship towards me. And we'll see what happens a little bit later in Exodus when they actually do that. What God is saying is this. Your fundamental problem is that you take good things and you let them become more important than me. You take good gifts that I've given you and you worship them. You turn good things into God things. It's not only destructive to you, it's extraordinarily offensive to me. For I am the only true and living God. I'm the only one that deserves that place that you should worship. You think through this. As we have problems in life, you know, uh, if we're kind of failing to love others, as we fail to tell the truth, as we fail to be generous, as we fail in any other way, it's often because we've put something else at the center of our life. We are worshiping something else. And that's why we won't love. It's why we won't tell the truth, because there's something more than putting God at the center. Underneath everything that's wrong with my heart and yours, under every wrong and bad behavior that we can't seem to stop, under every bad set of destructive feelings, that we can't put away is this, something or someone in the place of God. Think through it. All of us do it. All the Israelites, even though they promised they wouldn't do it, they still did it. They still put other things at the center, whether it be be their bellies or or, or their freedom. or (laughs) Every single person in human history puts someone other than God at the center. It's what we do. Everyone except Jesus. If you stand back now and you see these commandments and you see the right way to live and you think through the way Jesus lived, he actually fulfills them all. Jesus was holy. He, he responded in a way that was just for his dad. He served his father. He acted different from the world around him. He did not put anything or anyone at the center of his life than the word of his father. He fulfilled God's law perfectly. Not only was he holy, but he was the great high priest. Through him, he brought God's forgiveness to the whole world. He stood in the place between us and God and took the penalty for us that Moses could never do, that the sheep and goats could never do, but that he did. He was the mediator between us and God. And then he took that news of his death and resurrection to all nations. That all nations, through this true Jew, the one who lived perfectly, could have life. 
could be called a kingdom of priests. And above all that, he was his father's treasured possession. Has there ever been anyone more treasured than the son himself? As he comes up out of the water at the baptism of John, these words boom from the sky like words that we're about to hear at Mount Sinai. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He was and is the father's treasured possession and yet he died in our place. Because of Jesus Because the salvation that the Israelites experienced was only a shadow of what Jesus would come to do. Because Jesus freed us from slavery to sin and death. We are called today, those who trust in Jesus and those who do not yet trust in Jesus. You are called to put Jesus at the center and that means living very differently. Not in order to be saved, but because it has been done at the cross. Have a listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you might proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How does he apply it? Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, among the nations, so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. Live differently because of Jesus. Live this way. See how it's fulfilled in Jesus, how he comes and does it all, obeys all the Ten Commandments. And then respond to him by living as people who are different. We are temporary residents here. My primary identity is not as an Australian, nor as a Kiwi. The flag that I fly is the flag of the Son of Jesus. And if you are a Christian, it is the same. Yes, we, we love living in this country. We love being here. But our citizenship is with God and Jesus is our King. We are looking forward to that day that Jesus comes back and then what, what he is will be known to all and he is the king of all we are people whose home is not here right now we're called to live for someone else for somewhere else we're called not to fit in but to stand out in the world around us for we are a kingdom of priests a holy nation a people for his possession that we might proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light Now, if you're an introvert, that's hard. Like, extroverts love being looked at as examples to the world, right? It's kind of what we do. It's kind of, it comes naturally to different degrees. But if you're an introvert, you're like, no, I don't want any attention. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should be an extrovert. No, no, not at all. But in regard to how we live and who we live for, yes. For we are called to be a lighthouse to the world around us. It doesn't mean we need to be big and gregarious. It means we need to live with Jesus at the center. None of us should let our personalities or our personal preferences nullify the beauty of what we're called to be, ever. It's hard for extroverts too, because we care. We really care about what everyone else thinks. 
lots. That's why we, we're, we're often out there, because we want people to like us. The things we worship. How many of us are worried this Easter about inviting friends to come and see Risen? How many of us balk, like I did this week? I was going to invite a friend. I will invite him, but I just thought, oh, not yet. I wonder if our kids have invited their kids yet. Why? I'm called to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that those might come and see who Jesus is. How many of us order our lives around exactly the same hopes and dreams and desires as the world around us? How many of us look just like our neighbours? That in fact it could be indistinguishable that we're any different from them. Like no one notices because I'm living for the same things. That is not what we are called to be like. We are called to be different, very different. To live for someone else entirely. To be totally not focused on me, but focused on him. Do you get the difference here? You read through chapter you know, 20. You read through all the, all the laws. They're going to spend uh, a year here at Mount Sinai. I think it's 56 chapters until Numbers chapter 10. They're going to stay at the, at the base of, of, of Mount Sinai, hearing how to live as different people. Are we living as different people? Have we been so captured by Jesus that it changes what I live for with my time, with my money, with my words, how I spend my holidays, how I raise my kids? The world should look at us and be baffled. What are you living for? I say this to myself as much as anyone else. I often think and act and operate in a way for reasons and for reasons that are indistinguishable from the world around me. We're to live in the world, but not of the world. Now, I want to just go to the other extreme for a moment. This is not an excuse to grow long beards, move into a commune, become Gloria Vale or some Amish community. Let's all throw out our mobile phones and be like, yes, we're just a community and we're going to put cotton wool everywhere and we're just going to live as some total weirdos in the stranger bush. No, it doesn't, it's not a call to just deliberately be weird for just weirdness sake. Uh, it's not what we're called to do. So d- don't hear this as saying, you've got to live as different. Like, I'm going to be different. You know, and wear undies on the outside. I think I'm Superman. Like, that might work for you, but it's not what God's calling you to do. He's saying, live for me. May the world around you see that what is at the center of your life is Jesus. That's what it needs to look like. The last thing we see in this passage here is that we must not forget who we have been called into a relationship with. This is the God of the universe. He's not offering suggestions. Oh, there's a few ways you could live that might be a bit different. You know, you could maybe do this. or Maybe adultery is not such a good thing. But really, it's up to you. You could give it a crack, see how it works out. Um, you could have other gods. That's fine. You know, they're just merely suggestions, guidelines. You know, it's like, um, it's not what he's doing. This is the creator of the universe, the one who made you and sustains you. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who smashes his enemies. For those who go against him, they end up crushed in the Red Sea. This is a very vivid moment for the, for the Israelites. You remember, as we read through chapter 19, what they had to do to present themselves as clean before they even came near the base of the mountain where God would speak? Three days they spent preparing themselves, washing all their clothes. Did it make any difference? Probably not, but it helped them to realize, man, I've got to change before I come before this guy. Remember, anyone who even touched the mountain without God saying they could was put to death. 
This is the God that we are approaching. This is the God that we've been offered relationship with. We can't just waltz up and be like, hey God, how are you going? Look at me. <laughs> we've got to realize who he is, his power, the unapproachable nature of him because of who we are. We need to approach this God in all. Just listen. Look what happened as the people approached God. Exodus 20, verse 18. All the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. They wouldn't come near. They turned to Moses. Look what they say. You speak to us and we will listen, uh, they say to Moses. But don't let God speak to us or we'll die. I don't have that level of reverence for the God who made me. And I should. I forget who he is and the power that is behind his words. As you live, as you pray, as you determine how you will live your life, we need to recognize the incredible power of God. And at the same time, recognize the incredible salvation that he has brought to us and the incredible invitation to come and live his way. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 sums it up so perfectly. Chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. And even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm terrified and trembling, right? Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. We can approach this God with so much more confidence because of Jesus. We need not fear in the way that they did because we have Jesus as our mediator. Since the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can enter into God's presence with joy and thanksgiving and confidence for we are called his children. We are adopted into his family. And like the president's daughter can run up to her dad and give him a hug so we can run to the creator of all things and say, Father, Dad, I'm sorry. Help me to live with Jesus at the center. Thank you that you have died in my place and help me to tell the world around how great you are. So live that way. Live that way. Not because we need to do it to get into a relationship with God, but because God has already come down. He's paid the price for us in His Son and offered us and initiated for us relationship with Him. Live that way. Let's pray.